0: Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here, we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at asht.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Mia Erickson and Marsha Lawrence both physical therapist and certified hand therapist. They join us to discuss knowledge translation, what it is, how it is different from evidence-based practice, how clinicians can utilize knowledge translation, and how it currently and will continue to affect hand therapy practice. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Mia and Marsha.
1: So hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast this evening. We have two guests with us this evening. We're going to be talking about some interesting things. We have Mia Erickson and Marsha Lawrence with us tonight. So would you guys each mind introducing yourselves and giving us a little bit of brief background about what you're currently doing and where you're practicing?
2: Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be able to do this this evening. My name is Mia Erickson. I'm a professor at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. I'm a certified hand therapist and a physical therapist. And I've been practicing for 25 years. My most recent work is on the clinical practice guideline for carpal tunnel syndrome. It was published in 2019. And so that was really my springboard into my interest in knowledge translation. And then we are just getting ready to launch the revision or the update of the clinical practice guideline.
3: And I'm Marcia Lawrence. I'm really happy to be here. I think this podcast series that you guys are doing is pretty amazing. I've I've been really impressed with it. So I'm very grateful to be invited. I am not currently practicing, however, I'm a PTCHT and I work primarily in the regulatory space. I am the practice affairs coordinator for APTA's Hand Academy. And so what I do is follow trends in healthcare, in specific follow the legislation that is going to affect our ability to practice and hopefully try to get an idea in advance of where things are going so that we can get the word out and adjust what we're doing in order to meet the needs that are coming down the road. The big thing that I been working on for the last five years and I'm still working on is trying to get rid of the reasonably useful lifetime for orthotics under the Medicare beneficiary payment system. And there are two bills that were introduced into Congress this year that we have managed to kind of get stopped in committee. And we were until the Ukrainian war broke out working to try to modify those bills that were introduced by orthotists and prosthetists to try to come up with a solution so that we could all play in this space happily together. Most of that's been put on hold, as you can imagine, given the current events. So that's primarily where I spend my time now. So we'll
1: kind of jump right in. You guys both presented at ASHT's annual meeting last year and the topic was extremely interesting. Do you want to give us a little bit of an idea about exactly what is knowledge translation and how does that fit into our practice?
3: Sure. I'll jump in. It it is the broad term for a collection of processes that we undergo in order to move the published research or evidence into actual clinical practice. And so it's sort of that transition between research and application. And the World Health Organization has defined it as the synthesis, exchange, and application of knowledge by relevant stakeholders to accelerate the benefits of global and local innovation in strengthening health systems and improving people's health. So it's basically getting that research from bench to clinic as quickly as possible. This sort of started back in the 20th century when different physicians began to notice that it took a really long time for research to actually get implemented. And then in some cases, we sort of we were very selective about what research we went ahead and put into practice and what research had more difficulty getting put into clinical practice. And so they began to look at the process of knowledge translation that far back.
2: Yeah, and I would just add to that, I think it's really important to understand that knowledge translation is a step beyond evidence-based practice. So we all think of like Level one, level two, level three, four, five evidence. And knowledge translation actually is a process where we take the highest levels of evidence and we synthesize all of that literature and then make it available to clinicians for implementation into practice.
0: Yeah, I remember in PT school years ago, our professor saying, this very concept of yes, research will come out, but it will already be outdated. And so I guess maybe, can you speak to some of the specific barriers to this and how, why, why does it take so long? And maybe that's one of the reasons why people don't even want to put in the effort to do research too.
2: I think some of the barriers are those that we see that are similar to evidence-based practice. First, I think awareness of the research that is available. I think some topics have a lot of studies available. Some topics have hardly any studies available. And I think what's interesting is in the topics that have a lot of evidence, it can be so overwhelming for a clinician who juggles a full-time caseload. It would be up to an individual clinician to look at the entire body of evidence for, say, an intervention or diagnostic test or measure and try to come up with some idea of which direction the evidence is pointing. And the other difficulty with that is related to so much heterogeneity in the different studies and with dosing, with prescription, and even with the sample. For example, in carpal tunnel syndrome, we found a lot of heterogeneity in the severity of the cases that were included in the different studies, whereas a person with mild may react one way with an intervention, somebody with Uh, moderate to severe may act a little different. So I just think while we talk a lot about no evidence being available, I think it's almost worse to have a lot of evidence because it can become so overwhelming. And to have to sift through all that, I think it's just, you know, it seems like a mountain. It's really difficult.
3: There are a whole lot of other barriers, some of them being in our practice settings if the practice is really one that is really focusing on productivity and different standards, they're not going to try to take the time it takes to sit down and analyze their practice quality, their practice outcomes, or the differences in results for the same diagnosis that's happening between providers in the same practice. And so one place to start would be to have practices start looking at their practice variation and their outcome differences and see what different therapists are doing to try to see if they can standardize their intervention in order to get the better outcomes that other clinicians are able to get. There's certainly a problem accessing the literature. If you are not associated with a learning institution, it's pretty hard for you to get your hand on anything more than the abstract. There just isn't enough open source information out there for clinicians to get. And then there's not enough time. You work all day, you come home. Thanks to the EMR systems, a lot of people are still working on their notes at home using accessing those EMR systems from home in order to finish the day's work. And so when do you have time to sit down and study five or six papers on a particular topic? Many of us don't have the skills to critically appraise the literature, which is another problem. I don't know about you, but my statistics background is pretty weak. And So I have to trust that the statistics that they're using and that they're reporting are saying what they say they're reporting. Now, I do have a secret weapon. I have a son who's a pretty big math geek. And so if it really looks crazy, I just send it to him and say, this smells funny. What do you think? (laughs) And I get some idea about whether or not the stats are accurate, but we don't all have that resource. And so we really need some ability for a trusted source to look at the evidence and help us decide whether it's valid or whether it isn't. In addition, our patients come in with expectations. I don't know about all of you, but when the Olympics happen, I suddenly used to get a big increase in the number of requests for kinesio tape. People see what the athletes are using and then they want that type of treatment. And so there is an expectation from the from the patients that certain interventions will be used even if they may not be the best intervention for them at a given time. We also have provider bias. We all learned a certain way to treat. Some of us who have a lot of experience like myself believe in a certain way of treating and we have to realize that there are much more evidence out there now to point to better interventions Or to show us why the interventions we thought were really making a difference may not actually be making a difference. And it's very, very hard to overcome that provider bias. We all really like being in our comfort zone. This is what we've done for Dick for 25 years, and some of our patients get better. And we really have to look more critically at what we're doing and make sure that it's really the best possible thing we can be doing right now and the most cost effective. So how do
0: you see this affecting our practice today, but also affecting our practice in the future? I know you've mentioned that we might still be doing things that aren't interventions that might not have the evidence, but how does that also affect the future and with healthcare and with spending and everything that goes into that and the future of our profession.
3: So it's been reported that approximately 30% of Medicare spending is wasted on unnecessary or ineffective care. And so that waste is defined as spending that can be eliminated without really impacting our treatment results or the quality of our outcomes, We know there's variation due to the iniquity of each patient, and that kind of variation we would kind of expect. But the variation that really isn't getting us an improvement in outcomes is becoming a problem. It's actually being targeted by our referring providers. So there have been a number of studies that have come out looking at distal radius fractures and other commonly seen hand conditions and by using the huge databases that are available now, looking at the treatment trends, looking at the treatment outcomes, and there have been a number of reports that have shown that hand therapy usage is increasing, but the outcomes aren't improving, that there isn't evidence to support the increase in intervention for some of these hand conditions and questioning whether or not hand therapy interventions really change the outcomes. Distal radius fracture is one of the ones that many of us have seen, a number of those studies done by our surgical colleagues. This is really a problem because as healthcare spending is getting more and more out of control, the attempts to rein it in include using bundled payment systems in order to have a flat rate payment for a certain episode of care. That's already going on in knee and hip replacements. There's quite a bit of talk extending, saying that they're going to be extending it to distal radius fractures and other hand conditions. In that case, we're going to be competing against our, our referral sources for those healthcare dollars for a given episode of care if we can't show that the interventions that we do improve the outcomes, then we're not going to be getting the referrals for those patients, or we're only going to be getting them when their condition deteriorates to the point where it's going to be really difficult to get a successful outcome because they weren't treated correctly from the beginning. And so we need to be able to demonstrate that, We are consistently applying the care that's going to make the best difference for patients. And we're only using that care for the period of time that's necessary in order to reach a functional outcome.
1: Overall, Mia, you had mentioned evidence-based practice. So as a whole, what is the difference between knowledge translation and evidence-based practice for our listeners out there who may not know? Can you go into that a little bit deeper.
2: Yeah. So in our entry-level training in PT and OT school, we had a lot of information given about evidence-based practice. And this is the way that we should be treating and looking at studies that are out there trying to find the highest quality studies and integrating that with the patient values and patient circumstances in our experience and somehow coming up with evidence-informed treatment plan. And I think that that is still all being taught and I think it's becoming an expectation in terms of entry-level education. So knowledge translation, however, is taking evidence-based practice one step further. And what has to happen with knowledge translation is there needs to be a synthesis of the evidence out there for maybe one specific treatment or one specific condition to help those busy clinicians overcome that mountain or volume of work that's out there. And so we call this pre-appraised literature, and this comes in terms of a clinical practice guideline, a meta-analysis or high quality systematic review. And so that pre-appraised literature really is a synopsis of all of the evidence about a certain topic. And then the clinician doesn't have to go through all of the primary studies and sort out a one versus a two versus level three, four, et cetera, but can look at those pre-appraised papers And not only see the synthesis of the research out there, but also see the recommendations that the individuals writing or putting together the pre-appraised literature have made for clinical practice based on the best available evidence. So I always explain it to the students that knowledge translation is taking evidence-based practice one step further.
0: I actually had the chance to sit on on your session this last fall at the annual meeting. And one of the things that you said was that knowledge translation is not only about implementing best practice, but it also includes de-implementation, removing outdated, ineffective interventions from practice, but also balancing your experience your intuition, the patient and the science. And I think that's something that you've both mentioned is like, we can't totally forget about our experience and what we see, what the patient is in front of us, but how do you balance that too, with making sure that our interventions we might think, and maybe Marcia, you mentioned this with biases and and what we think has worked for forever and that experience of this works, but also maybe some science that doesn't fully support it or even interventions that we see different therapists trying, but there's no science to back it up. How do you balance that?
3: (laughs) There's a great resource out there that's called Choose Wisely, that was created, I think, by the internal medicine folks, AIPM. And we'll have a, we have that on our reference sheet that I don't know if you guys can post at some point, but this has been a really great resource where they decided to start really posting information from different organizations to try to help people as clinicians, as well as patients try to figure out whether they're getting the best possible care. And AOTA and APTA have both participated. And if you go to their website, you can see that APTA has a list of interventions that really shouldn't be done. There shouldn't be wound care done via Whirlpool, for instance, the application of hot packs without any other intervention is not an intervention that should be done for therapy. And there's a whole list of those types of things to discourage practitioners, but also patients from going to practitioners who will only give that type of intervention. There was an article in the New York Times this summer, addressed the same issue that reached out and said, there's a lot of variation depending on which physical therapist you go to. But going to a physical therapist who provides hands-on treatment, education, exercises you can follow through with at home, is much more effective than someone who passively treats you by applying a number of different modalities or machines rather than really interacting with you and teaching you strategies. So I think there's an effort to get information out there to both patients and clinicians about what treatments are really not considered to be effective. Another way to look at it is to compare differences or ask yourself, why am I doing this for this particular patient? And what difference is this making? If I have 20 minutes to treat this patient, what's going to give me the biggest bang for the buck and realizing that some of the things that we have done in the past have since been disproven in terms of being physiologically helpful to advance healing or improve function. And so, I think critically looking at what you're doing and asking yourself, how is this going to impact this patient and how is this really going to make a permanent change in what's happening is one way of of approaching it.
2: I would agree and just reiterate that we tend to be very multimodal as physical and occupational therapists and, and hand therapists. And We have to be very careful in not throwing everything at the patient and really trying to balance having a good rationale for everything that we are doing and maybe implementing what we know can work, but also de-implementing things that... Maybe have been shown to be less effective and taking a very structured approach to our integration or implementation so that we know what is working and what isn't working. And sometimes that's just listening to your patient and really trying to be cognizant of not throwing every treatment at them, but just trying to be very methodical in your approach.
3: No, we're taught that we can handle certain situations, and sometimes the patient's stage of involvement is too advanced and is not going to respond to the interventions that we have. And so we have to be able to define an endpoint where we realize that our interventions aren't working and reaching for more and more exotic interventions that have very little evidence probably is not going to be the right solution in this case. It may be that we need to refer on to another provider. And certainly, we see that in a number of different scenarios. Um, Decorvains is the one that comes to my mind where folks will try a number of different interventions, none of which have very much evidence to back them up. When the systematic reviews that have been published, there have been two. One about 10 years apart, they've reached the same conclusion that immobilization, rest, and maybe an ultrasound-guided injection are the most important conservative management techniques that can be used and have shown the best results. And when those have failed, that surgery has shown the best result. And so we sometimes have to realize that we can't continue to try to treat something when we're not getting any response at all. So I know, you know,
1: often in the clinic now for clinicians that maybe, and I don't want to, I don't want to judge or stereotype, but like clinicians that maybe aren't as into evidence as much as others, like I've experienced, you know, they're at their, status quo. I've been doing it for years. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. How as like managers or as a clinician who might be up a little bit more on current evidence, how do you help those clinicians try to integrate evidence into practice? Like you know, ultrasound is a big one for me. How much evidence is out there to support ultrasound versus not. And I have clinicians who use that on every single patient with three other modalities on top of that. So how do you really try to like get them to kind of change their thinking or try to facilitate the use of evidence in a practice?
2: I think that's a great question. At the end of the day, it's some sort of behavior change. And so you have to think about it from that approach. And in those cases, I think that it has to be an organization-wide approach that is going to be aimed at reducing practice variability. And for example, if one patient comes in with tunnel syndrome, and they see therapist A, they may get three modalities versus therapist B, they get active exercise and a home exercise program. And so I think, as an administrator or a leader, at some point, someone would have to look at practice variation, cost, outcome, and then really have a culture shift in the thinking that we're going to try to align what we're doing. And that's where the sort of action cycle comes in of the knowledge translation piece, where you look at the variation and you look at things that aren't right in your practice. And you really try to get a lot of buy-in from a lot of different providers. And so it's not just one person sending the message down, but it's it's a group of people who look at practice and look at the numbers and say, okay, we need to fix this. And then a step-by-step methodical approach to say, okay, what needs fixed? What are our barriers? And What evidence do we want to integrate? And it's baby steps, I think. I think if, you know, just like any other behavior change, if you do a little bit at a time, I think there tends to be more buy-in versus just, you know, a big overhaul on how you're going to manage a certain patient population. So, and that like in essence is how we go from the pre-appraised literature into practice is that whole like, process of getting a group of people together and saying, okay, what are the problems? What do we want to fix? And then how do we do that step-by-step? Step?
3: I know in one practice, they reported that what they did was they identified what they felt was one of their biggest problems, the biggest variation they had in care. And then each member researched and found one paper And that they looked at that paper, and they reported on the results of that paper, and then they kept a log of what those results were, what was the highest level of evidence, and what change they were all going to make based on that collection of papers that they each brought forward. And they agreed to make that change as a group and then evaluate their outcomes and decide whether or not they were better or worse, or not different at all, and go from there. So it's a very slow process. It's a tedious process. And it's one that administration and management have to buy into, which is really difficult in a lot of practice settings where the focus is on productivity, the focus is on how much money you're going to generate in a given day. But in the long run, being a practice that's known for providing consistent and high-quality care is probably going to get them much much further than the constant grind of running patients through and and having variable outcomes and variable interventions for the same diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I can see how making that culture shift is important and having it be just embedded in your the culture of your clinic or your facility, wherever you're working. Mia, I know that you're in academia, and I know you mentioned that what students are being taught, at least in your physical therapy school, but I know that there are certain things that part of accreditation that students have to be taught and things that have to be included How are students though, I guess, being informed of, okay, yes, this is a modality this or this is an intervention, but this is how to appropriately use that, or here's the evidence on it to then maybe impart some of that, which I know is hard as a new grad to come in and try to make a culture shift when you have zero days of experience. But is that something that's being included in education as well so that these students new grads feel empowered to implement this you know knowledge translation and hopefully be accepted by some of us seasoned therapists <laughs>
2: that's a great question so i'm going to i have a couple of things i want to say certainly from an accreditation standpoint we are all being required to teach students about evidence based or evidence informed practice and the value of clinical experience of the mentors that they are going to encounter on clinical rotations and in their first couple of years of practice so we also talk to them about a lot of Individual variation in patients, and it's frustrating because it does feel like a gray area. A lot of gray areas, and that there's not a one-size-fits-all prescription for a lo- you know so many things that we do. So we really like to give them the background of evidence-based practice and knowledge translation and what that means. But there's also got to be a mindset that. There is value in clinical experience as well. We also like to talk to them about humility and just about these are ways to do things like this, and these are not ways that you do things like this. So, just a level of professionalism when they approach a clinical instructor or a boss or a colleague, I think is really important. But, you know, I think one of the the most I heard on a course eval when I teach the biophysical agents course and I got my course evals back. And one of the students said, I had a light bulb moment with regard to evidence-based practice. And one thing I tried to teach is it's very easy to say there's no evidence for this modality, but Mm -hmm. the the reality is, is that what we want to do Is find the right treatment for the right patient at the right time, aimed at the right functional outcome. And so maybe there is no evidence for laser for one condition, but perhaps there is evidence for laser for a different condition. And so those are the things that students need to embrace rather than just, I'm gonna find one RCT that dictates my entire practice. I think if you look at the interventions that we like to provide and you find one RCT, it really doesn't tell you the whole story. It tells you one piece of the story, just like one piece of the pot. You've got to look at the whole body of evidence. And so we really try to emphasize that as well. And that's one of the reasons why the pre-appraised literature is so important is because somebody has done that and somebody has already synthesized all of the evidence out there and made clinical recommendations from it.
0: I think that's a great point for even practicing clinicians that sometimes we we do find that article or that chapter or whatever and say, this is the word, this is this is the end-all be-all and that's not always the case and we can't build our entire practice on what this one article with maybe seven, 10, 50, who, you know, whatever number of participants and say this is the way it's going to be for every single patient. I think that's a, a great point that you make that that we have to look at the bigger picture and utilizing those CPGs and systematic reviews because somebody else has done the work. <laughs>
3: And one of the complaints that we hear from clinicians is that insurance companies do exactly what you're describing. They find the one study that shows that something doesn't work, and that's how they make their payment decisions. And so trying to get the industry as a whole to look at that body of literature a little more critically is what needs to happen, but it needs to start with us. We need to be able to have that information. And then we have the tools that we can push back and say, yeah, that was that study, but it has bias and it it doesn't it doesn't look at the whole body of evidence. So it's very important to do that.
0: So I know both of you are quite involved with, with APTA and I have been involved with ASHT and other organizations. What are our parent organizations and our professional organizations doing to push knowledge translation or to, to challenge these insurance companies or these payers to say, hey, there's value in hand therapy or there's value in OT. There's value in PT so that we can be you know, at the table and seeing these patients.
2: I think one thing that APTA is doing is really pushing for development of clinical practice guidelines. And each academy has a role in identifying authors and topics that would be really beneficial in reducing practice variability and in synthesizing evidence where there is a lot of information available that some Good clinical recommendations can be made from.
3: And these clinical practice guidelines are open source, so they're available for everyone. They make sure that they are written so that patients can understand the summary of advice regarding examination, regarding intervention, regarding anticipated outcomes, and the same with insurance companies. So quite a bit of dialogue goes on between APTA and the payers regarding their payer decisions about blanketly accepting certain interventions, no matter what the diagnosis, or blanketly ruling them out. And so they constantly meet with the payers to try to demonstrate what the evidence is and try to indicate that they can't make these decisions because they're interfering with the patient outcomes. From an AOTA standpoint, they're doing the same thing. They have clinical practice guidelines that are available on their website, and they have recognized the same thing in terms of meeting with the payers and often AOTA and APTA partner together to meet with legislators if the payers aren't responding in order to try to take another avenue in order to reach some sort of conclusion or make sure that we're able to do the treatments that we know will make a difference or that the evidence is showing us will make a difference. From an ASHT standpoint, I think ASHT does a wonderful job of providing really quality continuing education that's been vetted, that is presented to its members at a reasonable, if low price, if not free in many cases, I think the journal club is a great example this is a, a free opportunity and I've gone on there and learned quite a bit about critically appraising literature depending on who the moderator is when Nancy Bill is on there it's amazing what she finds in these studies that I completely missed and it is fascinating and it's a whole free educational class for learning how to critically appraise the literature and That's just amazing that all of these services are offered for free. There's been a study that actually just came out a couple of days ago in the Journal of Physical Therapy, and it looked at the quality of the continuing education courses for musculoskeletal interventions. And they, they looked at about over 300 courses, and they evaluated the information, and they found that less than 50% of these courses were presenting information that was backed up by evidence whether it was systematic review whether it was a meta-analysis or a clinical practice guideline and in some cases they were adamantly opposed to what the evidence demonstrated because each state can regulate continuing education There really isn't any standard set for what these courses actually do in terms of of vetting the information. And so an organization such as ASHT, which really strives to provide good course material, really vets the courses at the annual meeting, is a great tool. And and they're doing a great service to help try to move the needle toward evidence-based practice.
2: Yeah, and another great initiative that is coming out is that some of the outcomes registries and what that entails is particularly tests and measures that have been found to be really good and very well supported by evidence become part of this national outcomes database where It plugs in with a clinician's EMR, and it helps to standardize the tests and measures for different conditions. And then it allows us to go from really small samples to really large samples of patients and clinics that are inputting their data into these registries. And I think that's going to be really powerful in the future.
3: Certainly, a lot of the studies that have come out that have based their results on these large databases are able to look at whole populations over a period of time and evaluate them. One of the problems we have is that they don't draw a distinction between the clinical specialists that are CHTs and the general physical therapists and general occupational therapists because our EMRs are not really coding that difference. And so there are some problems with the databases and the analysis of the data that's come from them. But it's a good start. And I think if we can begin to work with the EMR developers so that they begin to understand what outcomes are important to us, what credentials are important to us, what is the difference between clinicians so that we can start looking at those outcomes, that may help us quite a bit in terms of demonstrating our efficacy.
1: So if you had some key takeaway points, what would you like our listeners to remember after closing out this podcast? I think
2: one of the things that I would ask people to take away is to just, it really requires a process of self-evaluation and reflection, as well as a reflection evaluation of, a, of an entire clinic or practice. And to really stop or pause and say, okay, what what is going well? And what are we doing well? And what do we need to fix? And where can we start? And what is reasonable? So again, I think you just don't dive in. I think that it should be a really important process of self-reflection to see where that variability lies and how you can approach fixing it.
3: So. We're going to post some resources, and one of the things that I want people to be able to see is that there are some free resources out there. There is a link to the ECRI, which is sort of a data repository for clinical practice guidelines where people can register their clinical practice guidelines, they are posted, They are ranked by this organization and reviewed, and so you can see the strength of the particular guideline, and you can access it at no cost. And so I think this is a great resource, and so just having people look at those resources and see what's out there that they can begin to apply to their practice. We know there's conservative management for carpal tunnel syndrome, for instance, That gives us some guidelines of what we should be evaluating, what outcome measures we should be looking at, and really helping us with a decision tree or an algorithm for how we make a decision of whether this patient should be treated conservatively or maybe this patient should be recommended to move on for more aggressive treatment with another provider. So I think being able to look at those resources, there's a link to the APTA CPGs, there's a link to the AOTA CPGs. And so just being familiar with what's out there and maybe picking one of those that's already been synthesized to start applying to the patients in your clinic and seeing how that's different than than maybe what you're doing now and what you could change. And even if you just pick one thing, maybe it's the outcome measure and you watch how that changes and adopt that in your clinic and then Move on from there. But it it can be that slow of a process or that small of a change to begin to demonstrate that you're really measuring what's going to make a difference or what's shown to really demonstrate a meaningful change in your patient.
1: Great. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Marsha and Mia. Thank you. Again, we will list all of those references that you had mentioned in the show notes. So they'll be able to have access to those as well.
3: Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content.
0: You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit asht.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.